If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 18, the parable of the persistent widow. Maybe your Bible titles it the parable of the unjust judge, but I've gone with this title for reasons that will become clear. Luke chapter 18, we'll be reading the first eight verses. This is God's word. And he, that is Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we believe in your spirit and the promise that you have given us that he is with us, that he intercedes for us, that he makes known your truth to us. We pray that he would work together with your word this morning, that what you would have us know from what you have revealed to your people would work its way into our hearts, change our lives, and help us to live more and more in the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Maybe you've said this phrase to you yourself before when you're working on something like this isn't working. I remember one time I was assembling an Ikea shelf and this is a very common experience I feel like when you're like this is not working. I'm trying to follow the directions. Lo and behold the the manufacturing of the sh particular shelf I was trying to assemble was off and the holes just weren't aligned and it didn't matter how many times or how many hammer strikes I, I did it wasn't it wasn't going to work. The process was broken. Or maybe it's in, in something like growing fruit. I don't know if you've ever planted a fruit tree. It takes multiple years for them to flower and bloom and produce fruit. And if year one you plant it, be like, oh, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to give it six months. And then come October, you're like, where's my apples? And you said, this isn't working. Well, it's not really the process is broken, just not being patient in it. Maybe you've said this about your prayer life. This isn't working. The good news is if you're discontent with your prayer life, that means that God's spirit is within you, desiring to cry, Abba, Father. And because that's not happening in, in maybe the way which should, we are discontent. We're saying this isn't working. And this parable, like, like many parables, is meant to be a comparison 
It's, it's, it's really a contrast between the hearers that Jesus was speaking this parable to and the widow. Why, why is it that her petition works and ours, we feel like, does not? What's the difference between her and us? We're going to look at that through several questions, and as we do, we're going to see that faithful prayer works because of our faithful God. Faithful prayer works because of our faithful God. The first difference we'll see between us and the widow is that she knows what she needs. She knows exactly what she needs. You see, widows in this day and age were, were virtually powerless, could not own property, couldn't really advocate for themselves. The only way that they could get what was owed them was through a, a robust working justice system. And so this judge should have been the one enforcing whatever need she had. And she knew what she needed. She said to him, it says that she kept coming to him. The idea is that every time she came to him, she said the same thing. Give me justice against my adversary. It's not an enemy in like a, a military sense, but someone has wronged me. Maybe someone took something that belonged to her or did not give her what she was owed. This was her legal enemy. And she's saying, give me justice. You know the wrong was done, judge. Give me the justice I am owed. She knew exactly what she needed, and she did not waver from that message. You can compare this to us when we often misidentify what it is that we need. Maybe we think, I need just, I don't need a million dollars, I just need a little bit more money than I have. Or you say, I'm not, I'm not so greedy as that, TJ. I don't need just a little bit more. I just need this one nicer thing, a little bit nicer house or a little bit nicer paint job in that house or a little bit nicer car, whatever it is. And it just so happens that in order to get that, I need more money. Maybe it's success. I just need to be a little bit better at my job or, or be recognized for how good I am at my job. A, 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 just a slightly higher position. Maybe it's... It's just, I deal with so many things, and I just need to be entertained. I just need to be able to turn off my brain and just get some time to just cruise whatever streaming service I want and just watch whatever I want. Or maybe it's pleasure, and we seek that out in in sex or drugs or alcohol or any number of things, just to feel good. That's what I really need is, is pleasure. Or maybe it's knowledge, and I just need to learn a little bit more. And if I can just learn a little bit more, then I will be safe and secure in all that I have. Maybe it's a person. Either I need to be with that person, or I need them to treat me in a certain way, or I need to be away from that person, and I need to not have them in my life. These kinds of needs that we identify don't happen by accident. I heard, I heard said that no one becomes a, a consumerist by reading a pamphlet on consumerism and being convinced of its arguments. You become consumeristic by living in and around the message that's constantly pumping to you that you need these things. And if you notice the common thread through all of these things, these needs that we identify as, as the thing that will, will, will provide us the salvation and the security and the contentment that we want. All of these needs 
are achievable by us. All of these needs, there's, there's a pathway where I could just work it out to get just enough of whatever this is to satisfy myself. We overestimate our ability to get what we need. And we underestimate our, our true need. You see, the widow, she knew she was powerless. And so she went to the judge. She knew how desperate her need was. Your prayer doesn't work for us sometimes because it's idolatry. We are seeking other things than God through God. And we're not, we're not alone in this. This has happened throughout the history of the world. Adam and Eve in the garden, do you remember what the fruit was described as? Delight to the eyes, good for food, and desire to make man wise. It looked good, it tasted good, made you think good, right? These kinds of things, this, this, I need this to get what I want. Or you go through the, the history of the Israelites, and even the, as they were leaving Egypt, and they're hungry in the desert, like, man, I wish I could be a slave again, because at least I had food. What I need is food. Or maybe you see the judges, this time period in Israel's history where there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. They sought whatever they thought they needed, and all the turmoil that came with that. Or even when they decided they want a king, they decided to pick Saul because he was the tallest and the best looking. We need a king, and he's got to be tall, and he's got to be pretty. That's what we need. Or David, who sees Bathsheba, says, I need her. Or over and over again, as the, the Israelites seek after different idols who promise different things, or different nations who promise different types of security. Even the disciples of Jesus Peter was like, what I need is a conquering king to come and overthrow these Roman oppressors. This was the, the reason for the Reformation, that the church had lost its way, thinking it needed something else. Even today, we can look out in our culture and say, we have misidentified what it is that we need as a church, as a culture, as a community. See, our need is the same as the widow's. What we actually need is justice against our adversaries. And by that, I mean those three classic adversaries, the devil, the world, and our own flesh. We need justice against those things that would seek to destroy us. We need to live, as Paul says, no longer for ourselves, but for him who, who for our sake died. We need to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with our God. We need to combat the lies of the devil, the world, and our own flesh with honesty, both with ourselves and with each other, but also mercy, knowing that, that even, even our, our own sin is on display against others. We need to have our hearts changed. Not that person that you really need their heart to change so that your life would go easier, but we need our own hearts changed. Sometimes what we need is to suffer, to shake us free from the idols of our hearts. Ultimately, though, what we need is Jesus. 
We need a Savior who comes not just to wipe our slate clean, but to credit us his righteousness. And not just to do that, but through his death and through his resurrection to raise us to newness of life. And not just that, but one who gives us his own spirit so that we can live more and more to him and die more and more to sin. What we need is Jesus. If that's what we need... Then the next question is, where do we get it? See, the widow, likewise, she knew her need, but she also knew there was only one place to get it. She was helpless. She had no way to achieve the justice required for her on her own. She knew there was only one place to get it, this judge. And so she was relentless in pursuing him. Notice how, he, how, he descri- how it's described uh, this, this widow's actions. It says she kept coming. The judge himself says she keeps bothering me. And then he finally relents so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And that might sound a little weird to you, that phrase, beat me down, because the, the, the language there is actually either scholars are kind of divided. It's either she's going to beat me up. I'm going to get beat by this little old widow if I don't give her what she wants. Or, or, She's going to so besmirch my reputation in the community that my face will be black and blue. I will be metaphorically beaten down. She is aggressively pursuing this judge because she knows this is the only place that I can get what I need. You can compare that to us. We often lose focus and, and even if we come to God for salvation, we, we pick other avenues. Okay, God, I'll get my salvation for you, but I'm going to get my affirmation from social media. And I'm going to get my security from politics. Like, God, I know that you're in control of all things and you ordain whatsoever shall come to pass. But so help me if Donald Trump gets elected, I don't know what's going to happen. Or if Donald Trump doesn't get elected, I don't know what's going to happen. And we find our security somewhere else. Maybe it's in other people. God, I know that you love me and, and, and have knit me together in my inmost being, but I just want to find intimacy elsewhere. That's what I need, and I'm going to pursue it in other people. Oftentimes, again, this comes down, <clears throat> excuse me, this comes down to self-control. If I can decide what I need, and I can decide where to get it, then I can control what comes my way? You compare this to what our view should be. In John chapter 6, Jesus says some very hard things, and, and many of his disciples, not the 12, but many of his followers leave him. And so he turns to the 12 and says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter, who often is the first one to speak, Peter speaks up and says, Lord, To whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed that you are the Holy One of God. See, Peter gets it. I understand, Jesus. This is a hard thing. I don't understand it, but who else am I going to go to? There is no one else who has the words of eternal life. There is no one else who is the Holy One of God. heard it said that prayer is not a parlor exercise, perfunctory and tidy. It is an existential battle. An existential battle. Ongoing and ever present. 
And when you recognize that your hope is in God alone, it changes the way that you pray to him. And you can see this throughout the history of God's people. Eve, who had suffered the pain of being expelled from Eden, but who had heard the promise of God that he was going to send a redeemer, as soon as she has a child, she rejoices in the hope this could be the one that God has promised, because I know God alone will promise, will bring this promise to fruition. Or Abraham, who, who leaves behind everything he knew to follow the command of God and the promise of God that he would be the father of many people and nations, and through him the world would be blessed. And you see Moses, who was like, God, really, you're going to pick me? I can't even speak in public. But I will obey. After some urging, he goes and follows and listens through many difficulties. We see David, who's described as a man after God's own heart. And though he messes up many times along the way, continually returns to God. And we have many of his prayers written down as psalms in God's word. Or you have the King Josiah, whose, whose nation had turned away from God, but as soon as he finds the book of the law and sees what, what the need is, he turns his entire nation around and says, what we need is the Lord and what he has told his people. Or you see, when Jesus is brought to the temple as a young baby, just eight days old, Simeon and Anna, these two elder saints who had longed for the salvation of God, rejoice because they know that God is the one providing it. And you see the disciples, even after Jesus left and ascended to heaven, martyred for their belief that God alone, that Jesus alone can provide them salvation. Now, often we give up. We think maybe our problems are too big for God to handle or they're too small for him to care. Maybe God doesn't even care about us at all. Maybe I'm too broken for God to really listen. I need to get my act together first. Or maybe, maybe I can, I can figure it out on my own. Or someone else or something else can help me figure it out. The widow knows that there is only one place to get what she needs. And if we recognize that there is only one hope, we will, like her, be relentless and persistent in our prayer. The idea here is of a continual, ongoing process of prayer. Not, not just never not praying, but always being turned towards prayer throughout our life. The image here is, if, is it's kind of like, we, we all know we should be eating more salad, right? I mean, we don't, but we, we know that we should. If I decided, you know what? I'm going to eat more salad. And I'm going to do that by making a kiddie pool-sized salad on Sunday afternoon, and I'm going to eat the whole thing. The rest of the week, I'm going to eat cookies, but man, I'm getting my salad in. Sometimes that's how we treat prayer. On Sunday, I'm going to get my prayer in. We've got the invocation. We've got the pastoral prayer. We pray confessions. I'm praying silently while other things are happening. I'm going to get my prayer in, but I'm just going to not the rest of the week. Maybe this means when someone asks you to pray for them or when you offer to pray for them, you stop and pray right then. 
Maybe it means setting a reminder on your phone, right? I set a reminder to remember to send that person something or to, to pick that thing up or go to the store and get that. Maybe I should set a reminder to pray because arguably that's more important. Maybe when you drop off your kids at school or at sports or whatever, you pray for them and take that moment to pray for their welfare and for their love of the Lord. Maybe it looks like picking a psalm, just one psalm, and just praying through it. I don't know what to pray. Well, good news, David's been praying through his words for millennia. Pray with him. I heard someone ask, someone asked me this recently, and I, I'm, still, I'm still wrestling with the answer. What does it look like to pray when you've done all your normal praying? When you've prayed for all the things that you normally pray for, what does it look like to go back to God and pray some more? I'll, I'd give you the answer if I have it. I, I don't yet, but just food for thought. So we've seen that the widow knows what she needs. We've seen that she knows where to get it. And the last difference we see between us and the widow is in the judges to whom we appeal. The description of this judge in this parable is intentionally offensive. It's supposed to make us angry. Here is an authority with no respect for authority. Here is a judge who is without justice, who is the pinnacle of hypocrisy. It's supposed to make us a little angry. How dare this person be in public office? I mean, not that we have any experience with people who don't belong in public office being in public office. But how dare this person be a judge? And that's the point. It's supposed to offend us because if this unjust, selfish judge will give the widow what she needs then how much more will a selfless heavenly father give his children what they need? If the widow's judge was wicked and unjust, then our God is righteous and faithful. He is compassionate. His love is unconditional and everlasting. As he says through the prophet Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. I'm blessed to have many people that love me and who have loved me for a long time, but none of them can say that they have loved me with an everlasting love from before, from millennia before I was born. God says in Romans 8 that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I know Romans 8.28, TJ. I've quoted it before, often when I'm in suffering and in pain and facing difficulty, which is appropriate. But do you know the context of Romans 8.28? Because two verses earlier, Paul says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God loves us so much that even when we can't do the thing he's asking of us well, he sends his Spirit, who does it infinitely better, on our behalf. (laughs) 
The preceding context of this parable in Luke 18 is the second coming. Jesus is talking about the second coming and then immediately turns to prayer as if to say, hey, I will be coming back. But in the meantime, what should your life look like? It should be like this, this persistent prayer. That we should know that his timing, though we don't understand it, flows from his compassion. As Peter says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God's timing is perfect, and it flows from his love for his people. And you can see this throughout the history of God's people. As soon as sin enters the world, God makes a promise that there will be a redeemer to come. He knew it was going to be several thousand years. Adam and Eve didn't understand. They didn't know when this redeemer was coming. And he, he tells Moses, or excuse me, he tells Abraham that I am going to give you a son. And a couple decades pass. It's like, what, what's happening, God? I don't understand. And even when the son comes, he says, now I want you to sacrifice that son. And in the nick of time, he sends a lamb to take that son's place. Or with the Israelites, as they're wandering in the desert for 40 years. God, you promised a land flowing with milk and honey. What is happening? Over and over again, through the judges and the prophets, you see the cycle of, God, when are you going to return? When are you going to, to bring to fruition the promises that you've made? There's a, there's a multi-hundred-year gap between the last prophecy of the Old Testament and Jesus' arrival where God was virtually silent as far as revealing things through his prophets. What, what must it have been like to live in that time and say, God, you promised this Redeemer. What, what is happening? When is this going to come to fruition? And even us, as we sit here, after Christ has come, after he has fulfilled all those things by coming and dying on our behalf on a cross, being raised and ascended into heaven, by giving his people his spirit, we're like, Lord, when? When are you going to come? But we can trust in God because he is good. He commands us to be still and wait patiently for him. And waiting for us is like the least effective thing we can do, right? If I'm waiting, it means I literally have no control over what's happening. Whether it's at the DMV or the doctor's office or for TJ to finish his sermon, I, I have no control over this. I hate not being in control. But it's often, I've heard it said, the key toward spiritual fruitfulness is to wait on the Lord. And you can see this because... One of the most common metaphors for disciples is that of a plant. I don't, I don't know a lot about plants, and I know there's a few exceptions, but generally, I know that plants are stationary and slow. There's not many fast, mobile plants out there. And yet, that's the metaphor that God chooses to use for his people. So what does this mean for us? What is this? What are you supposed to get from this parable? A lot of parables, you have to kind of figure it out. Jesus doesn't make it explicit. But here, we have right at the beginning, he tells us the point. He told them a parable to the effect 
that they should always pray and not lose heart. How do we do that? One way that we cannot lose heart is to remember who God is, to remember his promises to us, and to remember our connection to him, our adoption by him, our union with his son, Jesus Christ. We must remember that just because he seems silent to us doesn't mean he doesn't care. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart for this light, momentary affliction. I don't know if you've read much about Paul's life. He was afflicted a lot. And yet he says, this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we can remind ourselves of this. It says that he will listen to his elect. That's not his elect individuals. His elect the community of his people. And we can remind each other of this by encouraging one another, by being patient with one another. Because when I'm patient with you, it means that I know God is coming to make all things right. And I can trust him instead of trusting myself to make things right. We can be honest with each other. We can share each other's burdens. We can be hospitable to each other. We can work together towards God's ends. We could join the one-on-one discipleship program together. We could pray together. See, sometimes our prayers don't seem to work, but, but they are being answered in the very waiting we're doing for the answer. God is working patience in us. God is working dependence on him in us. God is working holiness and perseverance in us while it seems to us he's not answering our prayers. As one medieval saint put it, God is never sought in vain, even when he cannot be found. God is never sought in vain. Maybe he has something better for us that we could never imagine. Maybe we're never going to know the answer, why the timing didn't happen. But the secret things belong to the Lord. And I find it interesting how Jesus answers, or ends this parable with this question. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This can seem kind of like a harsh question. It's like, okay, Jesus, we get the point. We're supposed to pray a lot. But it's not meant to be skeptical. It's meant to challenge and and cause us to turn inward and and reflect, do I actually trust God? But, But also notice that he doesn't say, will he find perfect, righteous, just saints when he returns to earth? No. He says, will he find faith? Will he find people who cannot do it on their own? but know the one who can, who are turning to him constantly, continually in prayer. See, you are praying to someone or something. You are looking to something or someone, begging it to fulfill your needs, begging it to give you what you want, what you think you need. The invitation of this parable is from God to us to be faithful to him in prayer because he is the only one who is eternally faithful to us. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I pray that we would always pray and not lose heart. That as we reflect on this story of this unjust, unrighteous, uncompassionate judge, that we would reflect on the reality of you as our just, righteous, loving, holy, wise, compassionate Father. That we would be like this widow, that we would keep coming, that we would keep bothering even though you cannot be bothered by us. That we would continually knock upon your door, looking to you for all that we need, knowing that you are the only one who can give it to us. Father, we thank you for all that you have given us, chiefly the work of your son and his life, death, and resurrection. Help us look to him with the help of his spirit. We pray this in his name. Amen.